And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson is away. Rob Russo is sitting in right after this. Again, Peter Mansbridge here. I'm in Scotland. Rob Russo is in Ottawa, and we're going to talk initially about the the by-elections on uh, Monday night. Um, you know, there were only four by-elections. Basically, it ended up exactly the way it started: two Liberals won in the seats that they had held before, two Conservatives won in the seats they had held before. The NDP vote kind of inconsequential; they were down a bit. Uh, but they weren't their seats. So you'd think, well, <clears throat> can't be much to talk about on that. But my gosh, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on, especially by some conservatives. So the question, Rob, is this all smoke and mirrors, or is are, are, are they warranted in the hand-wringing? You know, I, I love these kinds of stories, Peter. I used I used to have um, a lot of um, let's let's say vivid discussions with uh, with reporters when I was running newsrooms. Uh, they would say to me, you know, plane lands not a big story. Uh, plane crashes that's a big story. And I would say, whoa, just wait a second, okay? Uh, anybody remember the Gimli glider? And anybody remember the Air Transat player that ran out of fuel over the Atlantic and had to somehow get a couple of hundred people on the ground safely and managed to do so with no fuel in the Azores. Uh, this is one of those uh, stories where if you just read the headline, the plane landed safely, but there is a lot of uh, potential crashing going on uh, and there's a lot of drama. Uh, I, I'm, I'm one of these people, I, I, I've been on uh, other panels, uh, none of them as august as yours, of course, Peter. <laughs> of course, not. where 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 the party people say no, there, there won't be any surprises, and there haven't been any surprises. Um, but I'm I'm never one of those people when it comes to by elections in general. The leaders often go in, uh, the parties pour muscle and sinew into it, uh, and uh, they test themes that they're going to use during the general election. Um, and unlike polls, which are national often in general in nature uh, and theoretical, there's nothing theoretical about the results on an election night. And you're testing it with thousands and thousands of people. And in this case, you're testing it with thousands of people in three different regions of the country, three different provinces. So you've got a pretty good sense of where the country might be, where there are a lot of votes. Uh, so so. I, I say that about by-elections in general. Then I say to the people who say, well, you know, not much can generally happen in a by-election. Uh, really? Nothing momentous happens in by-elections? Anybody remember a, a woman named Deb Gray suddenly sure. getting elected in Beaver River? And all of a sudden, the Reform Party comes along. And what happened with the Reform Party? Well, it chewed away at the conservative majority. Uh, that was the beginning of it. And uh, a year later, in 1990, in Laurier Saint Marie, the, the Liberals were supposed to cruise to victory there. And there's a young uh, former Marxist named Gilles Doucette who gets elected. And the Bloc Québécois starts to eat away at the Quebec wing of, of uh, the Conservative Party. And the next thing you know, Brian Mulroney's gone. He, he's the Conservative Party, which had won all these majorities, is reduced to to two seats. Uh, so you can have some huge things happen uh, in an election campaign. And 
Uh, I don't say that huge things have happened in this one, but I will tell you that as a result of what uh, we've seen in these by-elections, the federal election right now, if it was held today, would be up for grabs as opposed to a romp for the Conservatives, which is what a lot of the polls have been showing for the last little while. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me, don't disagree with any of that. I uh, fully endorse what you've <laughs> just said. Uh, but I'm trying to get at the hand-wringing that's going on in the, uh, by some conservatives. And I keep underlining some conservatives because it appears to be the, the conservatives who were already feeling that Pierre Polyev was going too far to the right uh, in, in his actions and his words and, and the suggestion of his policies um, in an attempt to, you know, kind of block the People's Party uh, progress. Right, um, right. But they, they, they have not wasted any time since Monday night in pushing that line and that Polyev right. has to rethink his, uh, his, his position on a number of subjects uh, and his position really in terms of campaigning. Do you see that happening? You know, I think I think we're talking about Fred Delory, who is who is uh, the former campaign manager for Aaron O'Toole, who uh, now writes a Substack that that has gone from from zero to one hundred very very quickly in, in terms of how much it's read and how much influence it can have, if not within conservative circles, certainly in in the uh, uh, within within the rarefied class of the punditocracy. Um, but I don't think. Uh, and, and, Ms. and Mr. Delore has written um, uh, a, a piece on Substack saying conservatives need to be alarmed about about what happened, and we'll we'll come come back to that again uh, in a minute. But I don't think it's restricted to just Fred Delore. I've spoken to a member of caucus uh, from from the West, uh, a conservative who who feels the same uh, trepidation um, and concern about about what he saw on uh, on on uh, during the elections uh during the by-elections I, I can tell you that pollsters who have no skin in the game uh, po- you know one of the pollsters uh, that, that i admire is a guy named greg lyle uh with innovative research and and uh he's a guy who who polls for the parties he's a guy who polls for conservative parties as well uh and uh, uh he he has said that the message from the by-elections is uh, that that uh, Mr. Poilievre has has to go back to the drawing board on on some of what he's done since he's assumed the leadership in, in this past year. So yeah, the, there there is some hand wringing, um, uh, but I I would also put some of those results into context. But but first we we might want to talk talk about the results, okay? Because what what they've shown in effect is is that. The uh, the uh, Conservative Party leader, while hanging on to a, a couple of the by-elections where Conservative seats were up, um, you know, has failed in in one or two areas. The, and the one that I'm most concerned of, uh, be, be, I would be most concerned with, is Winnipeg South Centre. Um, I, I know that that's a riding that traditionally has gone liberal, but it did go uh, conservative when Stephen Harper won his majority in 2011. It is the kind of uh, suburban riding. It's not right downtown uh, that 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 a conservative leader might want to target. Um, and it's it's the kind of riding where, uh, uh, you know, if he's if he's going to win, he, he, he's got to be competitive 
in, in these kinds of ridings. At a minimum, he's got to be competitive, Mr. Poilier. And his, his vote went down. Uh, his vote went down. Uh, the Liberals' vote went up across the board. It went up. These are, you know, what are by-elections for? We always say, we always say, this is a chance for voters to kick a government in the shins. Well, how did the Liberals' score then go up? It's the same thing with Etobicoke Lakeshore last last uh, last fall. Same thing. Their, their numbers went up, uh, and and in, in Winnipeg South Center, uh, the uh, the Liberals were beginning to lap the Conservatives. Not just wasn't he wasn't the, the Conservatives wasn't weren't competitive, but they were being lapped there. The, the the vote went up while they're in the middle of all of this scandal and controversy. So I think that's the result that a lot of conservatives are talking about. That's the one that they're most concerned with. Now, we should uh, acknowledge, too, that, you know, by-elections traditionally don't have as number, uh, the same number of voters turn out as, as regular elections, and that was the case here as well. Um, although, though, so some of those spreads, though, are, are pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, in the Oxford riding in Ontario, uh, which is traditionally a conservative riding for, you know, seemingly centuries, with the exception of the uh, of the time when the Reform and the Conservative Party were splitting the vote and the Liberals end up winning every seat in, in Ontario. Oxford was one of them. Uh, but here, uh, the uh, Conservative vote just, you know, I squeak by would be wrong to say, but it was only, you know, it was less than uh, double-digit lead over the uh, liberals right. which is right. kind of unheard for uh, in that particular yeah. writing the, the, that was way closer than than it should have been but i think that one can be explained away because there 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 was a family squabble going on there the the, for, the former uh, mp was a conservative dave mckenzie um his, his daughter sought the nomination uh, and the uh, Pierre Poiliev and, and the people around him came in and, and brought in a candidate that they favored. So the party machine really was in, in favor of one person. So the former MP ended up campaigning for the Liberals. You, you had that. There are a lot of Mennonites in that riding as well. And they uh, are, are, are very conservative when it comes to, to abortion. And an anti-abortion nominee for the conservative nomination was prevented from running as well by by the center by the conservative center, so you had a lot of angry conservatives who either didn't turn out who who or, or who campaigned for the liberals because really I think since 1935 in Oxford uh, there have only been two times when the liberals have won that riding and that was when the conservatives were divided. This is a conservative riding. I think that one was close only because of the family squabble. Well. You know, you can, you can and they can make any number of different excuses for why the results were the results on Monday night. But yep. the bottom line yep. is still what you said a few moments ago is the liberals have been pounded from every direction for months. Yeah, They seem to be yeah. on the ropes and staggering in the ring. And here they end up increasing their vote. I mean, it, it, it is in a way... Uh, we use this phrase <laughs> often in describing Canadian politics, but it's a bit mind-boggling. Now, yeah, it was, and, and even in Oxford, you know, uh, they the, the Liberals were campaigning. I mean, they they did earn uh, more votes there than they have earned in decades, uh, and so their machine is working. You know, they're they're out there. 
they've got a well-oiled machine and and it's working. Krista Freeland went into the riding, which was a surprise. And and she was knocking on doors. This is not this is not a party that was running away from from a fight in a tough riding. They were out there and they and they did where they were able to identify their vote and get it out. Well, one thing that the liberals have got to be careful of is looking at those results on Monday night and saying, well, you know what, we don't really have anything to worry about. All these polls that come out every week that saying we're in big trouble. You know, here we are. We've just seen uh, four elections uh, on, on a miniature scale across the country, and we've done very well on all of them. Um, and we're seeing the historic urban-rural split, you know, right. that does not favor the uh, conservatives at the end of the day in terms of seats. Um, and so, you know, we don't need to worry about this. That's the problem right. the liberals could have, is that they just take yeah. for granted that they're okay. Yeah, I don't think the results show um, any stampede back towards Justin Trudeau. I think what they show... Uh, is um, uh, a, a real hesitance to, to run to any alternative. There, uh, you know, Canadians are saying right now, um, I'm, I'm not sure who I'd want to vote for. There's really not a lot on offer. Um, and, and I can tell you that conservatives are in many ways counting on, uh, not on that, but, but they're trying to suppress the liberal vote. Um, uh, you know, another, another conservative said something very interesting to me. Uh, when I asked him about the results, admitted that they weren't as good as they were supposed to be. But Mr. Poilievre's first order of business, uh, and it's the first order of business for any new leader, party leader, is to make sure that they have a firm hold on the base of the party, the operations of the party, the executive of the party. So so the job number one was to uh, diminish the, the People's Party of Canada threat, to try and get those voters to come home. As as Mr. Poilievre tells his caucus over and over again, I'm going to bring it home. I'm going to bring that vote home. Uh, they're going to come back. So he's, you know, uh, this this one conservative was saying early, we're early, we're, 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 we're nowhere near a, a federal election, although that could change. But his first priority is to try and bring those disaffected conservatives back. Um, did he did he do it? Well, he, he did it in Portage Lisgar. Uh, he, he didn't do it in Oxford. In Oxford, uh, he made it worse. So there, there are still some fences to be mended within the Conservative Party itself. Did he do it in Portage Lisgar? I, I, you know, I appreciate that uh, Max Bernier's vote came down from where the uh, People's Party candidate last time um, had been in Portage Lisgar, but not by a heck of a lot. I mean, he went from 21% of the vote last time round to 17 and change this right. time round. Yeah, but it's it's down twenty percent. Max is uh, is the the leader of the party, and I think the other the other results to look at. I think I think the um, uh, the PPC ran in two of the three other by elections where they finished behind the Christian Heritage Party. So those votes are beginning to come back to the Conservatives, uh, and and. Um, you know, there, there's never going to be a better issue for them than vaccine mandates. That's when the uh, the PPC hit hit their apogee. Um, I, I don't see another an, another issue like that. And you should also look at how much money they're raising as well. And I, I think that the PPC is not raising the kind of money that it was raising before, whereas the Conservatives 
uh, are awash in cash. Uh, they've set records in in the last quarter for for fundraising. So that that tells you a little bit uh, about about where conservatives are heading. I, I think they're slowly coming back to uh, to uh, to the Conservative Party from the PPC, but there's still some fence mending to be done within the Conservative family itself. And I also think that there are people inside caucus, and Mr. Poilievre knows this, who are watching him as well. The Conservative Party has effectively become a one-and-done party. Uh, you, you know, Andrew Scheer got one chance, he was done. Erno O'Toole got one chance, and he was done. Um, Mr. Poilievre might be getting his hands on the executive right now, but if he fails to knock off uh, a leader who has all the bumps, scrapes, and bruises on him that Justin Trudeau has, who is seeking a historic fourth mandate. If he fails to do that, uh, I don't think that the one and done thing is going is, is gonna to be over. I think that the Conservatives will once again turn on their leader. And, you know, the, the, the major challenge still for the Conservatives is they've got to, you know, it's one thing to say they've, they're pushing back the, the threat from the, from the PPC, but that's not their problem. They're winning those seats anyway. And they're winning with big yeah. majorities, which is part of the reason why they do well in national polls. Where they're not winning, and where this once again showed they're not winning, is in urban areas in the country. And they have to break right. through there, or they're, or they're never going to accomplish their goal. Yeah. And, and uh, again, let's go back to that, that danger for, for the Liberals. Uh, uh, the, you know, there is, there is not an appetite for the current alternative. But now that uh, Mr. Poiliev is beginning to get that PPC vote home, um, let's let's see if he puts a little varnish on what has been, in effect, an unvarnished, stout, right-wing conservatism. Um, let's see. I don't expect a pivot. That's just not going to happen. But in terms of uh, the issues that are debated by, by Mr. Poiliev as, as he seeks these votes, I mean, Really, a, a, a by-election about whether or not somebody attended the World Economic Forum when the fangs of a recession are beginning to bite into the backs of Canadians. Uh, we all know, and, and, and those who support Mr. Poiliev know this as well, and they say this, that that's not going to be an issue during the next election, unless the other parties try to make it that. Um, what he needs to talk about uh, is the economy, is housing, is interest rates, uh, it's it's dreams that are being delayed, if not dashed across the country. Those are issues that the conservatives do well on. Okay, before we leave politics, I, I want to mention something else that happened in the last couple of days. Um, and it was on stage in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And it was quite the moment. Um, you had one current prime minister and one former prime minister on the stage, Justin Trudeau. And Brian Mulroney, the last, uh, the last prime minister to win back-to-back majority governments, um, he uh, he he ended up leaving at the end of the uh, second majority government, and his party got wiped out, mm-hmm. uh, partly due to some of his uh, maneuvering in that second majority term. But nevertheless, uh, he's up there in the uh, you know in, in in the hierarchy of Canadian uh, prime ministers in terms of their records. Um, so Brian Mulroney is introducing on stage Justin Trudeau, and it's a remarkable speech because he he basically praised Justin Trudeau, uh, and at one point said, 
listen, Justin Trudeau's leadership is going to be remembered not for the trash and the rumors, but for leadership. And he talks specifically about the pandemic, but not exclusively about the pandemic. But there were a lot of people gobsmacked by that, and not just conservatives. <laughs> Some liberals were gobsmacked by it too. Um, what do you make of that? You know, we both covered Brian Mulroney, and we really enjoyed covering Brian Mulroney for for a variety of reasons. Um, one one of the things about Brian Mulroney was he was never dull, um, and he he gave, as we say in the business, great quote. Uh, he had this love hate relationship with the media as well. Uh, he loved them, and they hated him back at times, and and he could never understand why the love was not requited, um, and. and um, so I, I I begin by by saying that he, he he was a lot of fun to cover if you were a political reporter and you're getting a sense of why. Uh, he's also a guy who knows uh, a little bit about persevering through pummeling poll numbers. Right now, that Mr. Trudeau's national polling numbers are very not very good, and he and Mulroney knows a fair bit about that. He got down to I think eleven or twelve percent in the polls. But if you take some of the things that he said, some of the the quotes that he said. And and it, and just transpose Mr. Trudeau's name in them with Mr. Mulroney's name in them. You're going to get some of the basic elements of Brian Mulroney's stump speech these days. And a stump speech is is uh, the, the parts of the speech that are always repeated, no matter what the, the topic is about. Um, and and uh, there there was one quote in particular that I've heard over and over again in Mr. Mulroney's speeches. And it and while it was praising Mr. Trudeau. Uh, um, Brian Mulroney said, history is only concerned with the big ticket items that have shaped the future of Canada. And he said that Mr. Trudeau, in, in renegotiating uh, the, the NAFTA with, with uh, uh, um, a truculent Donald Trump, uh, had achieved something very big. But this is the theme of Brian Mulroney's post-political career. That leadership is, is uh, you get leadership to do things and that he's accused of people, including Stephen Harper, of not doing big things with, with government. But it's also what he's saying is, I did big things. I paid the price for it. So there's a, there's, there's a fair amount of that going, going on. Um, uh, but it, it, it's, it's still really interesting to hear this campaign, which has now gone on. For thirty, it's been thirty years since Brian Mulroney left office, and his legacy is is mixed, um, and it is controversial when when we think about his association with Karl Heinz Schreiber and others. But he's still trying to shape the opinion of journalists and historians when it came to Brian Mulroney's time in office, and that's what I hear when I hear him praising Justin Trudeau. He also met with with Poilier. Uh, last fall, I had dinner with him, him and Mr. Mulroney, his wife, Mila, which is a rare thing for his wife, Mila, to, to get involved in a political dinner like that. Uh, and he praised Poilier, uh, and But he did. He did warn him uh, as he praised him as a good listener. He said he, he listened to me. But I also said to him, the history of Canada shows you can't be too far to the left. You can't be too far to the right. Canada is a country of the broad center. So, uh, yeah, he's a very good listener. And here's what I told him if his ears were actually open. Um, I, I wonder, do you think he would have, I, I don't think Brian Mulroney has to fly anything past anybody before he says it. He, you know, he's very focused. I'm sure he knew for, for some time that he was going to say what he said in introducing Justin Trudeau. 
But do you think he uh, he gave a heads up to the to either Polyev directly or his office that he was going to do that? I doubt it. Uh, I, I, I doubt it. He 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 does say what he wants. Uh, he does he is uh, he does remain a member of the Conservative Party. Um, he he he, uh, he he continues to support support the the Conservative Party. But no, no, not not at all. Um, he. Uh, I, I can tell you, he loves being consulted, and he still enjoys the limelight, right? Um, uh, he he he's still ca- capable of turning a phrase, of delivering a speech with with wit. But you know, I always find that at the end of almost every speech, there is something there about the legacy of Brian Mulroney himself that's really at the heart of the speech. Uh, so this is a man who has never really stopped campaigning about the legacy of Brian Mulroney. So in some ways, when he used that phrase, he's going to be remembered for his leadership, not the trash and the rumors. One could argue he was also talking about himself. Substitute uh, Justin Trudeau, substitute Brian Mulroney for Justin Trudeau. And I've heard those lines in his speeches since then. And, and to, to be fair, he does believe that that's what leadership is about, that, that, that people do remember the big things. Uh, and his hero is Sir John A. Macdonald. And he often uses Sir John A. Macdonald uh, as an example and says uh, people will remember him as the guy who stitched Canada together, who who was there when the last spike was driven in. Uh, uh, and what he doesn't say is he won't be re- remembered for calling up the, the head of the railway and say, please send me another ten thousand dollars. I need the money desperately. You know, it's funny you mentioned uh, Sir John A. because. Um, not far, far from where I am, here in uh, northeastern Scotland, on the coast of the North Sea, where I've been swimming every day for the last week. Um, <laughs> not far from here, I'd say about less than half an hour's drive, uh, is the location where the uh, McDonald family's residence was in the early 1800s, uh, kind of a farmhouse. Now, Sir John A. himself didn't live there, his, his father lived there, and he came back and visited his grandparents more than a few times. They moved, I think, to Glasgow. Um, they had moved to Glasgow. But he came up, and what's interesting is there's, there, there, it's a kind of a back highway um, that runs through near that area, and there's a little sign at the, uh, along the highway saying, uh, family home of former, or of Canada's first prime minister, you know, turn here. And you, you travel about five or five or eight minutes, and then you're, you're, you find this kind of mound of rocks um, and, and another sign saying this, this was it. Um, and it was John A. MacDonald. Uh, it, it's kind of funny to be over here and see that, especially at a time when there is a lot of rethinking going on about, uh, about MacDonald and other key figures of, of the time and about their uh, behavior and their beliefs. Um, but, but there it is a part of a little slice of our history. And it's just this kind of pile of rocks and a, and a Canadian flag uh, flying there. It's worthy of a, it's worthy of a picture and you should post that. I, I imagine you're one of the very few Canadians who actually get there. 
Probably. I, I, I wonder, too, of the Canadians, that it, the, the highway that I'm talking about, it's not really a highway. It's mostly single track going across uh, Scotland, but it, it runs from east to west. So, it, you know, you, you cover the whole country in, a, in less than two hours. And it's along that particular roadway that this happens. And I'm sure even many Canadians who pass by there just keep on driving, <laughs> you know, uh, they don't stop. They should stop. I mean, it is a slice of history, no matter how you feel about the guy. Um, uh, he was there at the beginning of, uh, of a country we love. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, something totally different, not about politics, but a, a, a dilemma in many ways for uh, journalists, news editors, and those in charge of newsrooms, of which you uh, have been as a former bureau chief for uh, CBC in Ottawa, former bureau chief for Canadian Press in Ottawa, and worked in Washington, worked in Quebec City, the list goes on. The guy's a legend. Um, anyway, we'll, <laughs> we'll take a quick break uh, and back uh, with a totally different kind of subject right after this. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here with Rob Russo sitting in for Bruce Anderson, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, the Wednesday episode. Uh, of the bridge uh, you're listening on Sirius XM channel 167 Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform or as this is a Wednesday uh, you can watch us on our YouTube channel alright ever since I was uh, a wee tyke I've always been fascinated by the story of the Titanic I mean we came to Canada on a ship uh, from Europe um, in 1954 and I think that was probably one of the first times I heard the story about the Titanic, especially as we kind of passed that area. And we came over in April, too, which is a kind of a, a tricky month with icebergs and all that. Anyway, being fascinated by the Titanic story, and as a result, was fascinated by the movie, was fascinated by the discovery of the Titanic. <laughs> Um, love listening to Jim Cameron talk about his the dives that he took down to the Titanic as part of the filming of the movie. Um, and have been equally fascinated this week by one of the um, tourist submersibles that uh, go down to visit the shipwreck of the Titanic uh, at a cost of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars per person. Anyway, that submersible... Um, has been lost. There's some encouragement today that they've heard some tapping sounds. Uh, and as we record this, that's kind of where we're at. They're running out of oxygen, or at least they think uh, the oxygen supply will be gone in another 24 to 30 hours. Um, so none of those are good signs. But we're talking about five people, right? And so journalists around the world have been confronted with this story, um, versus a lot of other stories that are out there. I mean, this story started to happen on the same weekend as more than 40 kids were slaughtered at a school in northern Uganda. We talked to Sam Nutt about this the other day on, on the bridge because she's over there. Um, that's a horrific story and tells us something about what's going on in different parts of Africa. This was a, appears to have been an ISIS-inspired attack to slaughter these kids. Anyway, you've got this choice, whether we do this story or do we do this story over here about the millionaires and billionaires who are on this sub 
going down to see the Titanic. And there really is no argument here as to which has been getting more play. The question is, is that right? Or how do, how do we understand, or how should we understand those choices that are being made uh, by everyone, including by me? You know, I'm not trying to say, oh, no, no, I wouldn't do it. It's just that, that is what's been happening. Um, but Rob, talk to me about talk to me about the choice that's being made here, and uh, sure, and how we, sure how you defend it or I, explain I, I it. I think I think I think there's a there's a fundamental difference in in the uh, in the, in the two stories, um, and 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 in, in the two stories is news. First of all, uh, number one, in, in terms of the kids who were slaughtered. We're talking about a fait accompli, something that's already happened. Um, and uh, horrific as it may be, um, there's there's nothing that anybody can can do about it. We we all regret it. We we all wonder what is going on. We all wonder what is happening with the world, and that's the discussion that happens as a result of of going with a story like that. Um, the the story of trying to rescue the Titan and and the five people on board is something that may yet be a happy ending story. Everybody's hoping for a happy ending story. And, you know, there, there, if you look at network news now, particularly U.S. network news, all of them end their newscasts with an inspiring story, something that they hope will bring people back to the next newscast because people are looking for hope uh, in bleak times. Uh, and, and they are looking for some sort of inspiration. They are looking for some reason to, to keep going during during uh, tough economic times, during times when uh, democracies seem to be polarized. Uh, and so there's this element of uh, the possibility of a happy ending with, with the rescue of the Titan. The other thing is, uh, you know, without without a doubt, um, uh, there there's a there's a measure of I would I would say um, uh, on the edge of your seat, if not entertainment drama. But I'll, I'll draw you a parallel. It's the old spy movie or, or uh, drama movie cliche. You set a clock in, in the bottom of the screen with a countdown. <clears throat> That's going to take us to the destruction of something. And in this story, uh, in the story of the Titan, uh, uh, the clock is ticking um, and the drama is building. This happened on Sunday. It got it got very little mention. Uh, in Sunday night newscasts, uh, it, it wasn't prominently displayed uh, on the front of newspapers or on websites um, on, on Sunday night. But as as we get closer to the moment when those on board are going to be uh, out of oxygen, then the coverage has ramped up. So that's the equivalent of that, you know, that nuclear detonation kind of ticking a time clock in the bottom of a screen. Uh, and, and, and that's irresistible to editors. It's also irresistible to a lot of people who consume media. Um, but I think, I think the big difference is that, the, that I, that a lot of people are still hoping for a happy ending and that people are working towards a happy ending. And you've got also this international effort that's being poured in. This is not just uh, a Canadian story. It's it's not just a, an American story. It's now involving elements from around the world to say nothing of the fact that we're talking about a story associated uh, with another story that has 
fascinated people for over a century. And that's a story of the Titanic. You know, it's funny because you, you mentioned the name of the submersible as uh, the Titan, uh, which is accurate. But when you flash through all the stories, the name that gets mentioned more than the Titan is the Titanic, right? Or the, the right. destination for where the Titan was going. Um, it, it is a huge story here in Europe as well, especially in the UK. Uh, and it's all connected for the, the Titanic, and the right. the irony that uh, you know these five people are missing in the very same waters and the same site uh, as the Titanic went down at the cost of what was it twelve fifteen hundred lives, uh, and still, as you say, emotes uh, feelings. Uh, on the part of so many people, and this is, you know, intersected with that. Um, and and who 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 is aboard the Titan? Who is aboard the Titan? It's rich magnates who who can afford to to spend the couple hundred thousand dollars it takes to go down there. Uh, and who was aboard the Titanic? This was the maiden voyage of a luxury liner, and some of the biggest names in European. And, and American uh, capitalist royalty were, were aboard the Titanic as well. So there, there is there is some irony in 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 the fact that both of these uh, vessels, who share at least a part of a name, um, are, are 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 find themselves uh, you know find themselves in very very difficult straits with some of the same kinds of passengers aboard as well. It's something about summer too that brings brings us these kind of stories that can last. They're, they're almost a way, you know, as tragic as this one may be, it's almost a way of deflecting us from all the other stories that have much more import in terms of uh, our lives, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Uganda, whether it's uh, the cost of living, whether it's house prices. Uh, it reminds me of the summer of 2001 mm-hmm. uh, up until 9-11. The biggest story that summer, and it kept going almost day after day, week after week throughout that summer. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. I think it was the shark. Was that the summer of the shark? It was the summer Uh, of the shark. I was living in the United States then. Yeah. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, it it, it was bizarre, but it was the summer of the shark. And nobody remembers that, of course, now. Uh, I'll give you another parallel. I was also living in the United States uh, in 1999 when uh, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane went down and, and disappeared in the waters uh, off Cape Cod and, and it wasn't found for a few days. And, and the entire country was gripped. Um, and it also had the echoes of a tragedy that had befallen his father, of course, who was uh, you know, born and raised in Boston as well. Uh, so I, I thought of that when, when I when I heard about about this story and how history can have uh, tragic echoes sometimes and how the United States was transfixed and the world quite truly was transfixed that the, the little boy they saw saluting their dad uh, during during that funeral parade uh, was now missing and, and presumed gone as well. You know, in terms of the uh, the 2001 example, um in August, at the height of shark frenzy, the beginning of August, um, President Bush was warned by his uh, 
CIA director and others in the security and intelligence area, national security advisor, um, that something big was coming that they they'd heard. Uh, you right. know what's right. that term where they uh, you know the chatter? They'd heard chatter. Right. That something big was coming, and it was going to be on American soil. And basically, nothing was done. People, yeah. they basically ignored that. And I think some of that had got out, actually. But it got swamped by sharks. Yeah. While people were afraid to go into their swimming pools, Muhammad Atta and 18 other air pirates were making final preparations, were shutting down their leases, uh, were, were, uh, were, were going over uh, airline manuals, were doing everything they could to, pretend, to prepare uh, just a few weeks away to bring the U.S. economy to its knees uh, and, and, to, and to completely overturn the U.S. security apparatus. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unfathomable when you think about it. Well, let's hope uh, nothing like that's going on here right now. But um, we will dial in, as we always do, most of us, to, uh, to these stories that tug at our emotions. Um, and yet we can't forget about the other big stories that are happening that are important to our world and perhaps a lot more important to our world than, uh, than things like the uh, Titanic exploration. Uh, having said that, we do hope that there's a happy ending uh, in some fashion to this story. Uh, Rob, it's been great to have you with us. Um, it's always great when you uh, join uh, the bridge and especially Smoke Mirrors and the Truth. Appreciate you filling in for Bruce. Take care. I appreciate you having me on, Peter. I enjoyed it. All right, that's it for this day. Uh, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, your turn and the Random Ranter. Friday, Bruce will be back and joining um, Chantelle Bear for our final good talk before the uh, summer break. That's it for now. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.